Welcome to the Voice of Prophecy's brand new program, Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra, and I will be your host for today's program. Now, my guest is someone that you're familiar with and someone that I've spent the last 20 plus years with, and that is my husband, Sean. Today, we're going to have a lot of fun because normally he is on this side of the table making guests squirm, and today it's my chance to ask the tough questions. Yeah, I think I'm ready. You've asked me some tough questions over the years, and uh, as a man, I don't always have an answer for a wife's question, but on today's topic, I think I'll be able to keep up. (laughs) You're prepared on this one. I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) Well, you know, um, Sean, it's been... 12 years that we've been living here in the U.S., just over 12 years, actually, and it's really hard to believe. And although we're relative newcomers here in the United States as two political science majors, well, actually, I'm a political science minor, but you're a political science major. Yeah, that was a useful degree. That's the kind where um, you better learn how to make French fries because that's about what you can do with it. Or you can do a radio show like this with a degree like that. Right. Yeah. My my history slash political science degree was just about as useful. But um, it, it, it is good for today. We have leads to an interesting discussion. So because we've always been interested in politics, we've paid attention, you know, to what's been happening in the world. And a lot has changed even in the last 12 years. And I know that this is a subject you enjoy reading about and discussed in a debate recently in Washington, D.C., and that is the state of Christianity in America today. And I know it's a subject you're passionate about. It is. It is. Actually, before I became a Christian, politics was my whole life. Now, I've seen the odd person make fun of that, saying, oh, he's a preacher and an evangelist, but he's really a politician underneath. Uh, I guess I probably just have to admit that. I This was my whole life before I became a believer in Jesus Christ, or before mm-hmm. I gave my heart to Christ. And so uh, I follow it very, very carefully, and I think we'll discover today that it uh, absolutely weaves into Christian thought. Absolutely. Yes, I remember those years where your goal was uh, political office rather than running a yeah. nonprofit can you, can ministry. You imagine, can you imagine? <laughs> and I'm so glad we're not doing that because I, I admire the average family that runs for political office in America today because you are going to run the government. They are mm-hmm. ruthless. They go after your spouse. They go after your children. Mm-hmm. It's not a great thing um, to be in politics. I think the Lord probably spared our family from a life like that, and ministry is so much more rewarding anyway. Oh, I would have to agree. Absolutely. Well, you know, Sean, I've heard a lot of people say that America is a Christian nation. Yeah, right. Now, you're a preacher, as we just talked about. Once upon a time, you had ambitions in politics. So tell me, would you agree with that statement? Is America a Christian nation? Well, I I do agree with the statement that America is a Christian nation, but I want to say that with a word of caution, because... That phrase, Christian nation, or describing America as a Christian nation, really means different things to different people. It all depends on who you're talking to. So when you ask me, is America a Christian nation, I'm going to say yes, but it's a guarded yes, Mm -hmm. because it all depends on what you mean by that. I guess one way to look at it is to say, well, what else would you call us? Uh, You know, everybody in America, or the vast majority, I should say, not even close to everybody, I suppose, but the vast majority of Americans can trace their heritage to families that had some sort of Christian profession. What else would you describe America as? Are we a Buddhist nation? No, clearly not. We're not. Nobody thinks of America as a Buddhist nation, a Hindu nation, a Zoroastrian nation. No, we're a Christian nation. Gene, I remember one time a Mormon bishop, I heard him talking, and you know this guy too, he was Mm -hmm. challenging the idea because a lot of Christians would point to the Church of Latter-day Saints and say, that is not a Christian church. 
And, and of course, they say that because Christians are uncomfortable with calling Mormonism Christianity because of some radical departures doctrinally with, with what's in the Bible. And I feel uncomfortable with some Mormon doctrine as well. I, I'm uncomfortable. But his response is, well, what else would you call us? We're not a Buddhist sect. We're right. not a Hindu sect. Right. Clearly, we're a Christian sect. We're the Church of Latter-day Saints. Of, you know, we're the Church of Jesus Christ right. of Latter-day Saints. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, America, no question, you know, if you're going to give it a religious designation, at, at least culturally, it would have to be Christian. So uh, culturally designated as a Christian nation well, sort of fits. Yeah, we may mm-hmm. be drifting away from that, but there's no question it's a it's a culturally Christian nation. But personally, I actually think it goes further than that. It goes further than the fact that so many of us have a Christian background. It goes further than the fact that culturally we're Judeo-Christian. Mm-hmm. I actually believe there is something very special about the United States of America. And I'm saying that, as you pointed out earlier in the program, as a non-American. I'm not an American yet. That's happening very soon, (laughs) but I'm not an American yet. But I have been aware that there's something special about this country for a long time. You'll hear people mentioning uh, American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. And that phrase has been misused. A lot of people say, well, that's because we believe America is better than everybody else. No, it's exceptional in that it's radically different. Mm -hmm. Here is a republic that has been self-governed by the people, ground up for close to 250 years now, um, there is something distinctly special about it, and I believe that it is a Christian nation. But again, is what do people mean by that? Right. So let's talk about... Um Theocracy. If we're a Christian nation, how do, what is what does theocracy mean? Well, yeah, that that comes up a lot in the discussion about whether or not Christian, uh, you know, America is a Christian nation, mm-hmm. and a lot of people express a fear, and I think it's a justified fear that people who say it's an, a Christian nation want a theocracy. Theocracy, the word is, um, it's got theos, God, and, and rule, kratos. Um, theocracy is rule by God, you know, the, where the church runs the country. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of talk in the 20th century about that. There was one character, R.J. Rush Dooney, who came out with a theory that a lot of people refer to as dominionism, where he said what America needs to do is push back to having biblical practices, the law of the land. Now, when I say that America is a Christian nation, that is not what I mean. I actually believe very firmly in the separation of church and state. And I know a lot of people debate that today. Uh, a lot of people will point out the only time that you find the phrase wall of separation is in a letter from Jefferson to the Danbury Baptist. But I actually believe that we do have a separation of church and state in America. It's the Establishment Clause in the in the Bill of Rights. Um, and I believe it's the principles that founded this nation that actually make it distinctly Christian. I'm talking about the governance principles. Okay. So, you know, for example, a lot of people will tell you that this idea of separation of church and state was born out of secularism. And the reason they say that is they point to the Enlightenment philosophers who, you know, they say gave us secular government And they say the separation of church and state is a principle that came from secular thinking, not from Christianity. But I don't believe that to be true. There's a fantastic book, and I think it's just called The Hebrew Republic. It explains it so well. It's one of the best histories you could lay your hands on. Published by Harvard University, the author is Eric Nelson. And um, and he points out, in in no uncertain terms, this idea that the wall of separation, or rather the, the separation of church and state, was born of secular thinking is not true. Mm-hmm. It's not true. Look, mm-hmm. in the 15th and 16th centuries, Gene, we, we had two key movements erupt in Europe. We had the Protestant Reformation starting in the 15th century on the one hand, and then mm-hmm. as we get into the 17th century, we had the Enlightenment and its philosophers. The Enlightenment trended towards 
uh, secularism, and it gave us a lot of the nihilist philosophers and so on of the 19th century. But uh, and, and the Reformation, of course, was distinctly spiritual. It kind of sputtered as we got into the 20th century, but it was distinctly spiritual. Mm-hmm. You can trace a direct line back to the Protestant Reformation when you start with the founding fathers who gave us the American Constitution. American constitutionalism, American republicanism did not come out of secular thought. It came from distinctly Christian thought. That's that's fascinating to be able to trace backwards through history, starting at the founding fathers. So this assumption that the American Constitution and American small r republicanism came out of secular thought, you're going to have to just kind of explain that and dig a little deeper, unpack that for me a bit. Sure, we're going to we can do that. But what we're going to have to do now, I am a preacher, right? We've, we've mm-hmm. talked about politics. I'm going to put on the preacher hat. We're going to have to do a little bit of Bible study, and then we'll come back to a history lesson. I think that's probably the best way to okay. structure our discussion. Let's start with the Bible then and find the foundation here and do the Bible study, and then uh, you can walk us through the history after that. So where do you want to take us in the Bible? Okay. Uh, I think the best way to cover this now is to do something that Christian scholars were doing a lot of in the 16th and 17th centuries. That's going to be the basis for our Bible study. In the 16th and and particularly in the 17th century, uh, Protestant Bible scholars in particular were looking through uh, the Bible to see what it says about government. So this is probably a great Bible study for an election year. And uh, it's going to take us a little while to get through it. But they started to look at government in the 17th century in particular, and and they noticed something. Look, human government always goes wrong. It always goes bad. Um, And we all know that's true. We have an election every four years in America at the presidential level and at other intervals for other offices. Uh, And the reason we keep going back to the polls is because we have yet to find the perfect government. They all fail. They all go wrong on us. So we elect a new government. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11, that we have eternity in the heart. We know there's something wrong with the way the world is running, and that was true back then. So we'll put on our glasses, pretend we're in the 17th century, and we'll join some of these scholars for a Bible study. Um, And I think the best place to begin, Gene, is to go back to the very, very beginning to the book of Genesis and look at the way that God originally intended for human beings to live. Okay, let's go back there and talk about God's original plan for us. Sure. Um, originally, you know, we were put in paradise and there was no sin. And Mm -hmm. no sin meant that we really didn't need very many civil laws. You'll notice in the Garden of Eden, there was only one law. Don't eat from that tree. See that tree over there, Adam and Eve? Don't eat from that one or you will surely die. But beyond that, what laws did we need? I mean, we didn't need laws that governed how we sue each other because Adam and Eve didn't sue each other. Adam and Eve weren't likely going to get a divorce, so we didn't need divorce law. We didn't need speed limits. We didn't need contract law. True. Right? The only activity we were engaged in is subduing the earth to the glory of God. Uh, That was our assignment in the very beginning. And if you look at passages like Isaiah chapter 60, Mm -hmm. the Bible is clear. God says, I want my people to inherit the earth so they can glorify me with what they do in the earth. That was our assignment. But then we became selfish. That's where sin enters the picture. And a massive shift takes place. We move away from spending our activities, investing our efforts and our talents and our abilities to glorifying the creator God, mm-hmm. and, we, and we put ourselves on the throne. And we start to look at the world as a means of uh, gratifying our personal desires rather than glorifying God. Which is a, a, a total shift in thinking. Absolutely. It's, mm-hmm. it's actually a shift in the very character and structure of the human mind and heart. Mm-hmm. Now we live in a world, you know, Jeremiah 17 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's mm-hmm. the shift that 
happened. So now we're looking at the world through a different perspective altogether, and now government has to change somewhat because we aren't the people that we were. And obviously, God could have just abandoned us at that moment. All we deserved was death. He could have let us die in our sins, but instead he activates the plan of salvation. Mm. And uh, and what's curious about that, and, and it's important to the understanding of the biblical perspective of governance it's important to notice that the plan of salvation was established before we ever sinned. It was in place, right? First Peter 1, verse 20, he indeed, that's Jesus, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13 calls Jesus the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. Here is clear evidence that what God was doing was making sure there was a way to maintain or restore the original order of things back in the Garden of Eden. He did not plan for us to sin. That wasn't part of his big plan. He wanted to maintain what he created in the first place because that was perfection. That was the best way to live. So there already was a solution in place before we ever sinned. I find that very, very comforting. You know, Sean, we've just barely scratched the surface yeah. here today talking about what it means when we refer to the United States as a Christian nation. We started to talk about the assumption that the American Constitution and small-r republicanism came out of secular thought, and we've just started to dig into the Bible and explore God's original plan. Um, but we are going to have to pause for just a minute, and we want to tell you who are listening about something really special happening at Voice of Prophecy, an offer that you are going to want to take advantage of. I'm Jean Boonstra. I am your host today on Disclosure. I've been here with my guest, who is your regular host, Sean Boonstra. Stay with us. Right after this quick message, Sean and I will be right back to continue talking about the United States. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Like, where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness, or is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions? Well, the Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter the most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Welcome back to Disclosure, a brand new program brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy. I'm Jean Boonstra, co-host of Disclosure, and today I'm interviewing someone you're familiar with, our host and my husband, Sean Boonstra. 
Now, Sean, you've been dazzling me with your wit as you do every day. And we've been talking about America and what it means to call the United States a Christian I am nation. glad that after 20, what, how long have we been married? I never know. But it's, it's Yeah, I can still <laughs> dazzle you with something. Yes. It's not my looks anymore. It's just my wit. <laughs> your looks and your wit. Let's, <laughs> let's say that. <laughs> well, we've been having a great discussion about um, politics and the foundation of our country, which is not our home yet. We're still not American citizens, but that will change soon. But we've talked about God's original plan for our salvation before we ever sinned. And we just started to look at that in the Bible. And you you had mentioned God's plan to restore his people. Tell us more about that. What we're really doing is going back to the 17th century and looking at some of the themes that Christians were studying as they were starting to ask questions about government. And we went all the way back to Eden and discovered, well, God obviously had the perfect government. And even when we sinned, he had a plan in place before we sinned to make sure he restored the ideal way to live. Mm -hmm. And his plan is to bring us back to that. God's plan is not to have us float around on clouds, strumming harps with a halo over our head for 2,000 million years. He's trying to restore what we lost in the Garden of Eden. And if you go to the end of the Bible, that becomes really obvious. The reward for the righteous in Revelation 22 live in a place where the river of the water of life is there, just like a river went through the garden. The Mm -hmm. tree of life is there, like there was a tree of life in the garden. There will be no more curse. We know a curse fell on the human race after they left the garden. That curse is lifted. And then it says his servants, it's Revelation 22, verse 3, his servants will serve him. God is king. The ideal government is in place again. Uh, That's what God is doing now, is moving us back toward that. So that was his original plan for us, right? and he's going to take us back there. I love how it begins and the Bible ends with with taking us back to his plan. Absolutely. It's a kingdom. Mm -hmm. It was a kingdom then with God as king, and if you look carefully all through the Bible, you'll see that's God's plan. I'm bringing back that original kingdom, the ideal human government, right? Mm -hmm. Come, you blessed of my father, Jesus says, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, Matthew 25. Zechariah 14 predicts. The Lord will be king over all the earth. He's going to reverse everything we've done. He's going to put us back in that ideal kingdom. That was the original plan, and that's where he's taking us. Okay. Now, between the original plan and the restoration, there's a lot of history that happens. Yeah, that's right. So I guess the big question is, what does God do? um, That Now that we've chosen not to live with God as king in his ideal government, we rebelled. What happens now that we don't want to be as servants or we've chosen not to live in that kingdom? And this is, Gene, where it gets very interesting. Mm-hmm. Human beings after sin began to build their own forms of government. Now they're in a world where people die and people fight and people murder and people steal. And they're going to have to figure out how to govern themselves. So they build their own kingdoms. Now, that is not a positive development in the Bible. You'll notice that the first king mentioned in the Bible isn't David. The first king isn't Solomon. The first king isn't any Israelite king. The first king mentioned is significant. Now, there is a rule. It was taught to me by Dr. Leslie Harding. He was a brilliant lecturer. He said, look, every time a key concept is mentioned in the Bible for the first time, pay attention because it sets the foundation for how you understand that concept. So where is the first king mentioned in Scripture. So that rule of first mention then, wherever something's mentioned for the first right. time in the Bible, right. it has special significance. That's right. It, okay. set, it generally sets your understanding for how you're going to understand that concept throughout okay. the rest of the Bible. So now, who's the first king then? Yeah, the first king isn't David. The first king isn't Solomon. The first king isn't an Israelite. The mm-hmm. first king is in Genesis chapter 10. Now, if people have their Bible at home, they may, or they may just want to write the text down, look it up later. But Genesis chapter 10. 
it says in verse 8 that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter. Mm -hmm. Now, that's not a compliment. In the original language, the Hebrew word is gibor. Uh, It's impetuous. It's headstrong. It's rash. It's selfish. He's a mighty hunter before the Lord. That's not a compliment. He's self-governing. He's self-motivated. He's selfish. He's arrogant. And it says in verse 10, here's the first kingdom mentioned, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Mm -hmm. And it mentions three other cities from the plains of Shinar. But he's the foundation of the city of Babylon. That is fascinating. So he's a bit of a a rebel, a, a renegade maybe. And he he's associated with the very first kingdom. That's right. The first kingdom is Babel and the mm-hmm. associated cities, and Nimrod is king. Now, as you go through the Bible, you'll discover Babylon also is not a complementary term. Babylon is right. the very definition of self-rule. As you look through the Bible, you see it's really the story of two kinds of government. It's really the story of two cities. In the book of Genesis, you've got Babel, the city that uh, Nimrod founded. The word means confusion. And you also have Salem that shows up in Genesis 14, where Melchizedek is a priest of the Most High God, El Elyon, the Most High God. And he appears to Abraham, who declares God the ruler of the earth, and he brings uh, he brings out gifts with wine and, and, and bread and so on. It, it all points forward to Jesus. But you have two kinds of cities, two kinds of government, Babylon and Jerusalem. Okay. And that theme carries all the way down to the book of Revelation, where you have spiritual Babylon. She shows up all over the book of Revelation, and particularly in Revelation 17. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the book of Revelation, you have the new Jerusalem. You still have these two forms of government. One is God's government. One is human government. So these two forms of government show up at the very beginning, right away in in Genesis and continue throughout our history. And we're seeing that there's a spiritual application here. Absolutely. Those cities were literal cities in the Old Testament, but they point forward to the big principles of human Mm self-governments. Or is God your king or are you your king? Those are Mm -hmm. your options. And the problem stems, if you look at Revelation 12, all the way back to a rebellion in heaven, uh, where Lucifer leads one-third of the angels in a rebellion against the government of God, and they want to self-rule. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer says, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. That's the beginning of spiritual Babylon. It starts with Lucifer, and it carries down all the way to the end till and finally in Revelation chapter 13, you see the ultimate human government. You see a beast rising up out of the sea, has seven heads and ten horns, and the horns have crowns. There's the symbol of government, crowns. Mm-hmm. And it says that at the end, the dragon gives that beast his power, his throne, and great authority. Now, who is the dragon? Well, Revelation 12 tells the story of Lucifer's rebellion and calls Satan the dragon. And basically it's telling us Babylon ultimately is human government taken to its logical conclusion. Revelation 13 shows us where human government, self-government led by the dragon is going to take us. Uh, So you end up either in Babylon or you end up in Jerusalem. And those those are our two options. Those are your two options. Night and day options. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. so if you apply that rule of first mention and look for the first kingdom, you'll find out that human self-government, humanly designed government, is not really cast in a favorable light. So, Sean, how does God maintain his style of government with us fallen human race? Right. We've all run our own direction. We're building our own government. We're following in the footsteps of both Lucifer and Nimrod, the founder of Babylon. So God looks into Chaldea, the, the area where all this activity is taking place. And he calls Abraham out. He sees that Abraham is different. And in Genesis 18, he says, I'm going to make a great and mighty nation out of you, Abraham. All the nations of the earth will be blessed 
in you. So God finds somebody that he can use to showcase his style of government. And his plan is to establish a nation whose influence is going to spread all over the globe. That's why if you go and look at the book of Isaiah, you see again and again and again, you're supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. I want the world to see who I am. So God sets up his kingdom, which results in the Israelite nation, and that was a theocracy. Yes, in the beginning, Israel did not have a king. No, it, they, they didn't. God is the king. Mm-hmm. Exodus chapter 6 and verse 7 shows the terms of God's government. It says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Now, that's always been the relationship between God and his people. That was the intent in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, you will be my people, I will be your God. Mm-hmm. In Revelation 21, when God reestablishes his government in this world, He says the same thing. I will live among you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That was the terms. We were his servants. In Exodus 19, when the Israelite nation is born and Moses is leading them out of Egypt, God says to Israel, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. He's the king. He governs from the Shekinah glory, the presence above the ark in the most holy place in the tabernacle. He's the king. They listen to his instruction, um, and it is a theocracy. And what Israel really is, is a preliminary restoration of the way things were in the Garden of Eden. It won't be perfect. It won't restore everything because we're still sinners. But Israel is a showcase of the government of God that will come, that will be restored on this earth. And it's a showcase of how human beings can get into that kingdom because they're sacrificing lambs and they're pointing forward to the path back into God's kingdom, which is Jesus Christ. Mm. But it's a completely different kind of kingdom from Babylon. Mm -hmm. What's interesting, if you listen to Jesus describe what God had in mind with his kingdom on this earth, it's in Luke 22. He's talking to the disciples, and they're disputing, which of us is the greatest, Jesus? Take a look down the line. Which one of these apostles, well, they're not apostles yet. I I do know the difference. They're disciples at this point. (laughs) Right. They're disciples, and which one of us is the greatest? And it says, Jesus says to them, and this is Luke 22, verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them the human being in charge of others. Mm -hmm. And he says, Mm -hmm. and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. In other Mm -hmm. words, another human being is ruling me, and I'm supposed to be grateful that they're my benefactor. Mm -hmm. He says, those are the Gentiles. Luke 22, verse 26, he says to his disciples, but not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. Mm -hmm. And he who governs is he who serves. Jesus is saying, look, my kingdom is not like the Gentile nations. I want you to be different. In my kingdom, self is not on the throne. This is not Babylon. You don't have someone lording it over other people. You are all equal in front of me. So you see that come out in the New Testament church. James says, don't favor the rich man when he walks into the room. Don't tell the rich man, come sit here. We're all equals. This is not Babylon. God is showcasing his style of government. And and Gina, the reason that this is so important, the reason we've gone all the way back to these old biblical principles in ancient times is that these principles, that all are equal under God, those ideas start to show up later in key documents in America, like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Mm -hmm. We are responsible only to God. Gentiles have kings that lord it all over each other, and oh, thank you so much for being my king and giving me a few breaks and, and, uh, and being so generous with me. God says that is Gentile government. 
Right. And not his original plan for us. Well, Sean, this has been intriguing. And we haven't yet talked about the history of America and the founding of our country. And there are so many more questions I want to ask you. But I'm afraid that we are almost at the bottom of the hour. And on some stations, this is the end of our program for today. Now, we're going to continue the discussion for the rest of the hour. And if your station is carrying the full program, well, just stay tuned and we'll be right back. If after this break we lose you, well, don't fear, we're not lost. Just join us on our newly redesigned website and listen to the rest of this program online. Visit VOP.com and click on the Watch and Listen page. There, simply search for this program, America, a Christian Nation, and just keep listening. Now, don't forget any of the scriptures that we referenced today, and we've gone through a lot of them. You can find those in our show notes, those and other information that we weren't able to cover here in the program. Well, stay with us right here or continue listening online. Either way, Sean and I will be right back. the cloud of illegitimacy, the unlikely king who ignited a global movement, the world forever changed. His name, Constantine. Shadow Empire, war, power, conspiracy, a battle for your mind, a warning for today. Shadow Empire, starting April 28th. Find a location near you. ShadowEmpire.com. Welcome back to the second half of today's episode of Disclosure, a brand new program from The Voice of Prophecy. I'm Jean Boonstra, and I'm the co-host of this program, and today I have a very special guest with us. Now, this guest is usually on the other side of the studio desk, dishing out the tough questions, and today I get to deliver them to him. Our guest is also our host of the program and my handsome hubby, Sean Boonstra. Uh, you forgot dazzling and smart and all of those things. Okay. It's handsome and dazzling and smart. Okay. Well, we'll see if production can edit that in when they're in post. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, we've been having fun here today and we have just barely started to talk about United States as a Christian nation and what it means when people refer to the U.S. Right. as a Christian nation. Now, just before the bottom of the hour, we were talking about God's original plan for human government. Right. And then we talked about Abraham and how God set up a kingdom um, that was really a theocracy. You know, God was the king. Right. And God is king. God That's is right. king. So how do we move away from that to Israel having a king? Right. You know, a lot of people say, well, was that part of God's plan that Israel would end up with a king? Because we know we move beyond God being king and, and all of the subjects being equal subjects to actually having kings like Saul and Solomon and David and all the way down the line. And the big question is, was that part of God's plan? And my answer is no, not really. And this okay. is actually where the subject gets very interesting and where we find some of the roots of, of American government. Here's where we start to find the roots of why I insist that America in its foundational concepts is a Christian nation. Um, the debate over whether or not God wanted Israel to have a king proves to be one of the greatest religious debates to come out of the Protestant Reformation. 
And, and the reason it became a debate is simple. In the 16th century, Protestants throw off the rule of human clergy. I mean, that's sort of the number one thing that happens in the 1500s. Sure. Luther mm -hmm. burns a papal bull. Here I stand. I can do no other. I must stand on the word of God. Mm -hmm. And in the Reformation, Christians come to the conclusion that individuals need to be answerable directly to God and not to human clergy authority figures. Right. So they reestablish that link between man and God directly without someone intervening in Ab between. Absolutely. And, mm -hmm. and what's very interesting, and this will come up again later when we talk about how America is founded, they move away from a human authority figure to a document, the Bible, that mm -hmm. is the authority figure. And that's a concept that shows up in the development of America. But as they throw off the rule of human clergy, the next natural question that some people start to ask is, well, what about political human authority? What about kings? Kings it seems insisted. like a natural leap, doesn't right, it? Right, absolutely. Yeah. Kings insisted, look, we've got the divine right. God has established us. He has set us up as kings. And so they started to ask the question, is that true? Did God intend for people to have human kings? Now, by the time you come down to 17th century England, you have an interesting problem developing in the Christian community. There is still a state church in England, even though, you know, Henry has broken away from right. the church Roman Catholic England. Church. Right. Yeah. We've got the Church of England. Mm -hmm. And in the 17th century, people are being forced to worship according to the forms of the Church of England. They're told, look, you've got absolute religious freedom. You can believe whatever you want. But as far as going to church and rituals go and the form of worship, you are going to use the official worship forms of the Church of England. There's a reason that the Anglican prayer book is still called the Book of Common Prayer. The idea was everybody's free to believe what they want, but you're going to use these forms of worship. Mm -hmm. Now, there were people who didn't like that, Baptists and others, and they got they got the name dissenters. They're dissenting from the Church of England, which still has a human king as its head. Mm -hmm. And this is the time in history when we see notable characters like John Bunyan, who goes to prison for being a dissenter. He writes Pilgrim's Progress. He writes The Holy War. Beautiful classic books. Yeah. Beautiful, mm -hmm. Some great mm -hmm. literature comes out of this period. You've got John Milton, who writes Paradise Lost. Mm -hmm. And he actually gets derided a little bit because he's not in favor of a human king. And in his book, Lucifer's the one pushing for independence from God the King. And, and so people start making fun of him. John Locke, who wrote the Second Treatise of Government, a foundational document for the founding of America, he's writing at this time. Now, because life was hard for the dissenters, people like John Locke, a lot of them went to go live in one of my favorite countries. They went to go live in the Netherlands, where my ancestors come from. Boonstra doesn't sound like a Dutch name at all. Boonstra is a very Dutch name. <laughs> and yeah. what the Dutch had done by this period is they had actually established a republic rather than a monarchy. It's a little bit of a hybrid. There's still a monarch and, and so on. But they're establishing a republic like the Romans used to have. Mm -hmm. um, you know, government by the people with a document that defines what your rights and privileges are. When the dissenters, these notable British figures, end up in the Netherlands, they come in contact with another community that has fled there, the Jews. The Jews are running away from the Inquisition, and they're moving north up into Holland, and they are, there's quite a thriving Hebrew community in the Netherlands, and the Protestant reformers come in contact with them. Okay. And they also come in contact, for the first time in centuries, with Hebrew scholarship and they start to read the writings of Hebrew rabbis. People like Maimonides and others who are really big names in Hebrew scholarship. And when they read the rabbis, here's what they find. The first five books of the Bible are considered like a constitution of a Hebrew republic. So they're taking the Bible 
and using it as a foundation. Absolutely.、Mm-hmm. They're going back in time and saying, "Look, God established a form of government so human beings could exist in this sinful world and still display His glory and His character." And his style of government,、mm-hmm. and the rules for that civilization—the civil rules, the religious rules—they're all found in the first five books of the Bible. So they begin to consider that as the constitution of a Hebrew republic, okay, where God is in charge. But there are clear rules for civil life written out. There are rules for what do you do if somebody steals your sheep?、Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you do if somebody kills your wife? That kind of stuff. So I, I find it fascinating that this group of Jewish rabbis is then mixing with these dissenters that are coming out of England and other parts of Europe, and this is all happening as America is just starting、right. to grow. And I know we're going to talk about that in a minute, but before we do, I, I have to ask you. Still, how does Israel end up with a king? How、right. does that happen? Right. Well, Israel ends up with king as they're looking at the constitution of the Hebrew Republic in those first five books of the Bible.、Um, They notice a few key passages. They get to First Samuel chapter eight, where Israel asks for a king.、Mm-hmm. They come to Samuel and say, "Look, Samuel, you're our judge. You're sort of the government,、uh, but you're getting old, and we don't like your boys. I want you to give us a king that will judge us like all the nations." You'll find it in First Samuel chapter eight. And he gets upset and he goes to God, and God says, "Don't worry. They're not rejecting you when they're asking for a king. They're rejecting me." me. Mm-hmm. Now go back and warn them. I'm going to let them have a king, but here's what's going to happen. And you'll find it in First Samuel eight and verse eleven. This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. In other words, there will be conscription. There will be a draft. Verse fourteen: The king will take the best of your fields. There's going to be taxation. Over and above the ten percent tithe, the king's going to ask for another ten percent for himself, and he warns them: a king's going to treat you like this.、Mm-hmm. And they say, "But we want a king anyway." By the end of that chapter, they can't say that they weren't forewarned. No, they were absolutely、yeah. forewarned. It's God's pattern: eat、mm-hmm. from this tree, you will die. Want a human king? I'm not going to deny you. Everyone else has been free to follow Babylon. You want a human king?、Mm-hmm. Go ahead.、Mm-hmm. Right.、Mm-hmm. So God warns them, and He lets them do it. They say, "Okay, but we want a king anyway to help us fight our battles. We'll put up with taxes. We'll put up with conscription. We'll put up with all the things that'll happen."、Mm-hmm. So it it sounds very very clear that God is not in favor of the idea.、Um, Right. Did did the Israelites then choosing this path in spite of of the warnings? Did that lead to some of the problems that they had? Well, absolutely. It's so clear in Scripture that God is not in favor of the king, and this is what they begin to debate in、um, in the Netherlands and among the dissenters and other Protestant reformers. They're saying,、um, "Did God not want a king?" And they notice some things. The kings lead to all of Israel's trouble. Even David, who's a man after God's own heart, who's the the legendary king of Israel,、mm-hmm. he he listens to Satan in First Chronicles twenty one. He numbers Israel, and a plague falls on the nation.、Mm-hmm. Saul becomes a spiritualist. Solomon he ends badly, and eventually, by the time you get down to Second Chronicles chapter thirty six, which was the end of the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible,、mm-hmm. that was the last book. It ends the Old Testament in in the Hebrew version ends with Jehoiakim doing evil in the sight of God. He does abominations. Jeho. Jehoiakim does evil in the sight of God. Zedekiah does evil in the sight of God. That's the way、It's、that the Old Testament originally、yeah. ended. Absolutely, it、mm-hmm. leaves it hanging,、mm-hmm. and it calls it the abominations of the king. And what does God do? He sends in Nebuchadnezzar, who conquers the nation and desolates the temple. When you hear the phrase "abomination of desolation" in the Old Testament, it's the abominations of these kings that led to the desolation of the temple. God says, "You don't want me? Great, go ahead." Worship other kings, but he packs up the temple and he leaves. Sends Nebuchadnezzar and he says, "If you want pagan kings, you can have pagan kings." And after that point, they never again rule themselves. So, it has a permanent effect 
on the Israelites, on that nation. A- absolutely. Th- they never again have that self-rule. No, no. This mm-hmm. is where, now they're in Babylonian captivity, and you have Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and you see all these pagan kingdoms that are going to rule over Israel, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, even the divided nations of the Western Roman Empire, which become Europe, they rule over, and the next kingdom that God establishes is the one that establishes when Jesus comes. The stone fills the whole earth in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel 7, you have those same pagan nations. Uh, They're depicted as animals coming up out of the sea. Israel pictured itself as an island in the middle of a Gentile sea, and all these animals, these beasts crawl up out of the water and they rule over Israel and it's an unbroken stream of pagan governments ruling over them until Jesus after the judgment is handed his kingdom and God replaces all human kingdom with the kingdom of his son. So he he restores what his original plan is but it doesn't happen until That's you right. know Jesus comes right. again. There comes a yeah. breaking point where the temple is left desolate, and Jesus says the same thing again in the New Testament. And Israel never again governs herself. She gets what she asked for, gets pagan kings all the way down to the end. And if you look, it culminates that way for the whole human race, because Mm -hmm. the belief system went on to the Gentile nations. God took the gospel to the Gentile nations. You and I are of Gentile extract, and yet we believe in the God of Israel. But in the end, Revelation chapter 13 shows that the problem of self-worship ends in this climax, this unfortunate climax, where human government shows itself for all that it is. Mm. I mean, we mm-hmm. made reference to that earlier. A beast mm-hmm. comes up out of the sea. That beast is made of the same animals that you find in Daniel chapter 7, the pagan nations that would rule Israel. They're all there in Revelation 13. They come up out of the sea, and it says the dragon, that Satan, gave him his power, his, uh, his throne, and great authority. And in verse 3, all the world marveled and wondered after the beast. So you never again get self-rule. Now, all of these dissenters, all of these Protestant reformers are looking at this, and they're saying, look, um, God did not favor a king. But others came along and said, oh, but God predicted there would be a king. And here's where the debate starts to emerge. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God tells Israel, when you get into the land of Canaan, you're going to ask for a king. You are going to ask for a king. Mm -hmm. So now the debate is, well, if God predicted it, then it was God's idea that they would have a king. And other people say, no, he just foresaw that they would want one, and it wasn't his idea. And that's the big debate uh, in the 1650s in particular. Interesting. So we've just barely started to scratch the surface here, Sean, and it's fascinating. I'd love to spend a little more time here in Deuteronomy chapter 17. We need to look at that because now we're getting to where America comes from. (laughs) Right, which we promised we would get to. But uh, we are going to have to stop and take another little break. The minutes are just zipping by, and we've been talking about the dissenters in the Church of England who interestingly ended up in Netherlands uh, at the same time as a group of Hebrew rabbis. And just what the impact of all these historical circumstances had on the foundation of our country, of America. Well, we are going to pause for just a minute, and you might want to grab a pencil and a paper and take advantage of this offer from The Voice of Prophecy. Now, if you are interested in finding answers to life's biggest questions, we have a great resource for you. I'm Jean Boonstra. I'm your host today on Disclosure, here with my guest, who is your regular host, Sean Boonstra. Stay with us. Sean and I will be right back, and we are going to dig a little deeper and find out just what it means when we call America a Christian nation. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, where is God when we suffer? 
Can I find real happiness, or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers and guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and A Second Chance at Life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. Welcome back to Disclosure, a brand new program brought to you by The Voice of Prophecy. I'm Jean Boonstra. I'm your co-host. And today I'm interviewing someone you're familiar with, our host and my husband, Sean Boonstra. Now, Sean, we've been digging deep today. We've talked about history. We've been studying our Bibles. And just before the break, we had just started reading in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And we were talking about the fact that God predicted a king. The scriptures predicted a king. Now, the question is... Did God want there to be a king, or did he simply foresee that there right. would be one? Now, that was the debate in the 1700s. Some people were saying it was God's idea to have a king because he predicted other people saying, we want to get rid of the human king. Mm-hmm. And the reason that there was a debate was because you have First Samuel 8 on the one hand that says, uh, the king is a bad idea and you're rejecting me. God's mm-hmm. very clear. But Deuteronomy 17 predicts a king. And so this is where the other side of the argument comes from. Now, we should probably take a couple of minutes. I know we don't have a long time. But uh, look at Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's there's, do that. Yeah, there's no doubt God predicts a king. In verse 14, it says, When you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you um, and possess it and dwell in it, you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. There's no question that God predicts it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean it's his idea. It means he predicted it. Mm-hmm. It could be two very different things. Right. Yes. He also knew that Adam and Eve might sin. That's why he had the plan of salvation sure. in place ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Now, here's what's interesting. If you look at it, God says, I'm going to let you have a king. He's already telling them, I'm going to let you do this. If that's really what you want, I don't violate free will. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to put some rules around it, and I would encourage everybody to pull out Deuteronomy 17 and look at it, um, spend time in that chapter, because you'll notice the rules that God puts around a human king echo rather strongly the principles that end up forming the American Republic. All of these discussions in the 1700s, in the 16th century, uh, get handed down from generation to generation, and these are still on the minds of the people who form a brand new form of government on the other side of the ocean without a human uh, authority figure like a uh, high-ranking clergy or a king, mm-hmm. right? They found a mm-hmm. nation without a king. So here are the principles. In verse 15, you've got rule number one. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Now, God says, I'll let you have a king, but I'm picking the king. So he has control over yeah. who that I'm king gonna, is. I'm going to pick the king. And you'll so notice if, that Saul and David are handpicked. So it, it sounds to me like God's saying, okay, if you insist on this, I'm at least going to help you with the selection right, process. Right, right, right. Mm-hmm. So that's rule number one. That's okay. not really one that shows up in the Constitution. But now listen to this. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, verse 15, one from among your brethren. 
So the second rule is he's got to be a commoner. He's going to be one of you. This is not somebody over you. It's one of you. Now, that principle does show up later. Sure does. Government of the people. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Rule number three, he's got to be local born. What do you notice about the American president? Mm-hmm. He's got to be born here. He's got to be one of us. He's got to be someone who grew up here or she. Yeah, I was just going to yep. say he or she. He or she, <laughs> right? No foreign influence. That right. does show up in the American Constitution. Which is why you and I can never run for president, even when oh, we become right. citizens. No, no, we can't. Because we we're can't. born in I wasn't Canada. born here. Right. So it, it, that influences how we choose our president very heavily. This is on the minds of people in the 1700s. Very interesting. Right. Mm-hmm. Verse 16. He shall not multiply horses for himself. Rule number four, uh, he shall not multiply wives for himself. The king can't get rich on the backs of the people. So taxation is regulated um, and that kind of thing. And that shows up in the American Republic. Mm-hmm. Now comes the really big one. Verse 18. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom. Listen to this very carefully. This is the king. Verse 18 of Deuteronomy 17. He shall write for himself a copy of this law. In a book from the ones, the one before the priests, the Levites, and it shall be with him. The king has to make a copy of the foundational laws of this Hebrew Republic. It shall be with them, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Rule number five was, you're going to have a human king, but I insist there is going to be the rule of law, and you are going to be a constitutional republic, if you will, to use a modern term for what was being established. I suppose it may be a constitutional monarchy because you have a king, and, and, and God is still the king of the nation, but the supreme law of the land was a document to which the king had to defer. And that shows up in the American Constitution. The, the the foundational thing in America is not a king. It's a document. It's the Constitution. They put it in paper and they said, everybody must live by this. We'll separate the powers and the president has to be born here and he has to live by the law of the land. It, 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 these are the ideas that lead to the development of the American Republic. The conclusion that the reformers come to in the 1700s is God didn't want a king, but he allows it and he creates rules for it. So they take these things and they form a government that doesn't have a king. Fascinating. It's, it's very, very fascinating. You know, as as we're reading through this scripture, it's it's just so clear to me, the parallels. Now, Take us a little bit further with this, Sean. Tell us how how exactly does all of this and what's right. happening in 18th century lead to America? Right. So the Reformation takes religious authority away from a single human being, and it points people to a document. It's the Bible. Mm-hmm. The Enlightenment copies that somewhat, the Enlightenment thinkers, and we have these revolutionary movements in the 1700s. France has a revolution. Mm-hmm. There are revolutionary thoughts everywhere. This is Napoleon's day. And now they remove civil authority from a single human being, and they move toward a document. And in America's case, it was the Constitution. Right. And that creates a very unique nation. This is where the term American exceptionalism comes from. France reverts to a monarchy, and other revolutions kind of fail. But for 250 years now, this thinking led to what was the most ideal circumstance on Earth. The debates in the 1650s recognized that human beings should be directly answerable to God and not other human beings in the most important issues in life. Mm-hmm. So France beheads Louis XVI. Mm-hmm. America throws off King George. They write a constitution. By 1791, we've got the Bill of Rights. 
And if you look through that carefully and you do the homework and go back and read what the reformers were writing in the 16 and 1700s, there's this unbroken path to the Constitution. They write in clear Protestant principles. So we have the right to believe in God or not believe in God. We have the right not to be governed by a church or a human clergy member or a king, mm -hmm. and we can thank the Reformation for those rights. So is America a Christian nation? My answer is a clear yes. It's not a theocracy, and that's the point. No establishment of religion in America is the point. That's what makes it a Christian nation. This is a place that's never going to be perfect, but what we've done is move towards this situation where individuals can live in, a, in direct responsibility to God, or they can choose to reject him, and they don't have to answer to another human being. So they have the freedom to choose that. Right. Yeah. This is yeah. as close as we can get to exhibiting the way God thinks mm -hmm. on this world. God allows freedom of choice. He allowed Adam and Eve to sin. He allowed Israel to go down the wrong path and, and get a king. Um, and he allows us to live as we please. This is as close as we can get to exhibiting. Now, there is a problem in all of this. In the 1600s, some scholars start to see something interesting. There's a second beast in Revelation 13. So talk to us about that, yeah. that second beast there in Revelation. We're going to have to do this really quickly because I know we're going to run out of time. Sure, let's at least but just scratch the surface. The first beast is the culmination of all these pagan forms of government. You've got the, the lion, the leopard, the bear, and the horns, and the crowns, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's a clear description of human government that culminates in something really bad in the last days. But some scholars started to look and they recognize there's a second beast and right. it comes up out of the earth in Revelation 13 verse 11 and it has two horns. Horns are a symbol of political power. That's why there are horns on the first beast. It has two horns like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. Okay, so it's horns like a lamb, speaks like a dragon. Right. Those don't seem to match each other. Well, here, here's what they noticed. The Gentile nations were beasts that came up out of the sea. Daniel 7, Revelation 13 verse 1. The masses of Gentile humanity. Mm -hmm. The early horns in Revelation 13, had crowns. They're pagan kingdoms. But this second beast doesn't have any crowns, just horns. This is a political power without kings. It comes up out of the earth, not the sea. Right? The Gentile nations came up around the Mediterranean basin. They surrounded Israel. This comes up out of a different place. And these people went back and looked at Revelation 13, and they saw the earth is the place that opened up to help the persecuted Christians of the world escape. And they recognized this has to happen near the end of the Dark Ages. And a region of the planet did open up that had no king at the end of the Dark Ages. It's Very America. Yeah. And America was lamb-like, built on these principles found in the Old Testament constitution of the Israel Republic. I'm using modern terminology to describe it, but it was lamb-like in the beginning. Jesus is the lamb 27 times in the book of Revelation. It has two horns like a lamb. It's built on the right principles, but eventually speaks like a dragon. So, Sean, why does this lamb-like nation speak like a dragon? Well, that's where we kind of are now. They, they noticed way back when that uh, this nation would have two horns without crowns. It speaks like a lamb, but eventually speaks like a dragon. And so we're sitting at this point now where the nation has been established in a place where the persecuted fled for religious freedom, um, but it does speak like a dragon. And the dragon, of course, is Satan, the very one who gives impetus, who gives the throne and authority to the first beast. And what this is predicting that even this, the very best form of human government to date, a place with absolute or close to absolute religious freedom, where you and I are free to worship God according to the dictates of our conscience, where we can model what it means to live with God as your king and no human intermediary, 
it's also going to fail. The human heart is wicked and sinful, and eventually we can't help ourselves. Revelation 13, verse 12, finally says that this second beast exercises all the authority of the first beast in his presence and causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And then it goes into compulsory worship. Revelation 13, the big issue is worship, mentions it six times. And the second beast leads the world to worship the first beast. And we go right back to human government, to designer, do-it-yourself religion, design it, do-it-yourself government. And even this best experiment eventually ends with the need for Jesus to intervene, come in person and establish his kingdom because every, now Every form of human government has absolutely failed, and it's time for God to say, you've tried everything else, I've let you go your own way, and now my son is coming as the second Adam, he's going to restore the earth to what I had in the first place, and reign and rule the way that I intended. Amen. Nothing that's humanly designed can ever match God's plan for us. Hello, I'm Jean Boonstra. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions? Answers to help you make sense of the chaos in today's world. And answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your own life. Well, maybe you're wondering, can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? Is there a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers that you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7933, for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There's never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. And did you know that you can listen to this program from your smartphone or tablet? Just search for Voice of Prophecy in your favorite app store. At BibleStudies.com, you'll find answers and guides like Bridge to a Satisfying Life and The Secret of Happiness. Answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Give us a call at 888-456-7933 or visit us online to begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today at BibleStudies.com. Well, Sean, it's been a lot of fun having you as my guest today on our show, Disclosure. Now, this is a brand new program that our ministry, Voice of Prophecy, recently launched. I'm really excited about it. You, of course, are the regular host. I'm the co-host. It's been fun making you sweat a little today here under the lights in our brand new studio here in Loveland, Colorado. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, I like sitting in this seat because I get to pontificate instead of answer the, <laughs> ask the questions. Well, we'll do it again. Well, we hope that you who have been listening have enjoyed our discussion today, too, about what it means when we call America a Christian nation. Now, if you've missed part of the program, don't worry. You can listen to it in its entirety on our website, vop.com. Just click on the Watch and Listen page where you'll find this episode. And you'll also find easy-to-use links to take you to our podcast, and you'll find our show notes with all of the scripture references we've touched on today. 
Well, until next time, this has been Disclosure. I'm today's host, Jean Boonstra. May God bless you abundantly.